0: Last week, I told you that these uh, Pilgrim founders of our country were not like other men. They were not like other people. They had to sell that message to the Virginia Company to get a corporate sponsor to pay for their trip to America. You may not know. They have two ships, not one. You know about the Mayflower, but they also have a second ship called the Speedwell. I'll explain to you in just a moment why... Maybe you've never heard of the Speedwell. They've got the Speedwell packed with food. They've got all their fishing poles, their nets, all of their equipment in there. The goal is, sell to America and two ships. When we get over there, the Mayflower and Captain Jones will return. We'll be left with the Speedwell. If we, in an emergency, have to get back to Europe, we'll take the Speedwell across the ocean. If in an emergency, or for Productivity. We need. We need food. We'll go fishing. Get the ship. Drop the nets. If we need to explore, we'll use the speedwell. Let me now take you through the progression of history, playing off of the theme we talked about last week—that these pilgrims were a unique people. I don't know what picture you have in your mind. I, I, I've always grew up with a picture seeing these guys in black hats and buckles and and uh, you know white tights and all of this stuff. I'm thinking. From what I read about Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, the Puritans came out of these people. I'm thinking these are the most uptight people ever to walk the face of the earth. They are the strictest of the strict and the most, you know, uh, 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 rule-following people ever. But if you research them and you read actually what Pastor John Robinson has written uh, or was recorded by eyewitnesses there on the Mayflower, which I'm about to do for you, you realize these pilgrims were actually very progressive thinkers. Their theology was actually very progressive for a Baptist even to think about. I'm going to take you through part of uh, their their thoughts, part of their theology as I open this message. But let me say to you, after the history lesson I gave you last week, you understand the reason they left England and they went to the mainland of Europe uh, and Holland was because they were, their, their, their youth were not following the faith of their fathers, ultimately. Uh, the, and we talked a lot about that last week. And uh, uh, we talked about how it applies to us here in our context. Uh, they wanted to be free. They, they were persecuted. By the way, just, it's worth saying this to you. The pilgrims were persecuted in England by King James. Just let that sink in for a minute. For those of you who are raised with real fundamental roots... It was King James of England that actually was the one persecuting the people that founded this country and that's why they fled because he wouldn't allow them to be progressive in their religious thinking. He wanted them and the bishops and the Anglican Church wanted them to comply with the Church of England and they said, no, we want to continue to evolve the faith that was given to us as you'll see this morning. Many of you here this morning, Jesse, I'm just seeing you right here. You're an easy target. You and I have talked a lot about this. You are raised in a very conservative home. I was raised in a very conservative home, both of us preachers, kids. And you and I have had a lot of heart-to-heart conversations about what it means to follow Christ in our own generation. And what should our thinking be? Uh, Should we hold to the faith of our fathers and say we cannot consider anything outside of what was revealed to us by our parents Or should we allow the Holy Spirit to speak truth into our lives and see if we can take the faith of our fathers, not forsaking it, but take it to a whole new place? And that's really, you're in my position, I know, having spent some time with you. And you're going to be shocked to know that in 1620, this was exactly the progressive uh, thinking of our pilgrim fathers and mothers who founded this country. If you've been a cornerstone uh, member for 10, 5, 10, 20 years, then you've seen a lot of change. Uh, I've, I've heard people say to me, "Wow, Pastor, this is no longer the church that I joined." Well, praise God. By the way, your pastor is no longer the pastor he, no longer the man he was five years ago. Praise God. I'm changing. I'm growing. And as God is giving us light and giving you light, I hope we're making some progress towards that light and embracing the truth that God is revealing to us as he reveals it to us. It is in the tradition of the founders of our country. Let's get to the embarkation. They're ready to get on the ships. They're ready to sail. Uh, I'm going to show you a painting here. Uh, Only a minority of the congregation would fit aboard the ships is what they came to figure out. And I'll explain a little more why in a moment. And so two-thirds are going to have to stay behind in Europe on the first third Goes over. Ultimately, there's a parting of the way, and Pastor John Robinson uh, uh, stands on the deck of the Speedwell and he delivers the final sermon that he's going to give to the Pilgrim family before they sail across the Atlantic Ocean. Edward Winslow is one of the men standing there on the deck, and uh, in a Harvard publication a few years after 1620, he chronicled all the words that Pastor Robinson spoke. I'm going to read it to you in the first person. It's, I had to edit it because it's written in 1600s English with lots of e's and y's and these and those. And it doesn't read very well. So I, I edited it to, so it's readable. And I'll give you excerpts from the pastor as he's preaching the, the, the final sermon. By the way, this uh, painting, it's called The Embarkation of the Pilgrims. It's hanging in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And if you'll Google this this afternoon, this painting will pop up. And uh, John Robinson, his pastor, is, is, is right here. Uh, William Bradford is kneeling right there. And uh, 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 the one holding the Bible uh, is uh, William Brewster, the one that's heading to America to, to be the pastor. I'm reading now the words of the pastor of the Pilgrims on the final sermon. Quote, We are now about to part asunder, and only the Lord knows whether we should live to see each other's faces again. But whether we meet in this life or in the next life, I charge you before God and his blessed angels to follow your pastor as he follows Christ and only as he follows Christ. Isn't that a beautiful statement? It says, follow your pastor. You say, well, what about if you don't follow Christ? Then don't follow me. You know what Paul said to the disciples of Europe as he began to make disciples? Imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Listen, you need, sometimes people say to me in a negative way, well, you're teaching people just to follow men. Absolutely. As they follow Christ. Absolutely. Because that's exactly what Jesus taught. He said, imitate me, disciples. You got it? Okay, now make more disciples. Who are we going to tell them to imitate? Peter, you're going to tell them to imitate you. As you have imitated Jesus Christ. We're telling you, follow your life group leader, follow your D group leader, be a disciple People at this church will not just lecture to you Christianity. They will meet with you once a week and live it out in front of you. And there's something about a living example that's a million times more powerful than a lecture you can get at church. He said, follow your pastor because now they're about to split into two congregations. They're about to have a different pastor, those going to America and the ones who are staying in Europe. He continues, and if God reveals anything to you by another human instrument of his... Be as ready to receive that truth as you were to receive any truth in my own ministry. For I'm very confident the Lord has more truth and more light yet to break forth out of His Holy Word. Listen, when I read this, I'm so blown away by the progressive theology of the pilgrims. The pilgrim pastor is saying to his church, if another human instrument can lead you into more truth and more light than I have, receive it, even if he's not from your circle. How cool is that? Listen, let's not just read ourselves and hang out with ourselves and and quote ourselves. Let's read what other people are saying. Let's hear what voices are out there, and then let's be ready to judge if it's true or not. He said, I believe the Lord has much more truth ready to break out. He goes on. The Reformed churches have come to a period in religion, 1620, and they will go no further than the instruments of their Reformation. I want you to embrace what's being said now. The Reformed churches, 1517, have Reformed, but they went no further than the instruments of the Reformation. For example, the Lutherans cannot be drawn to go beyond what Luther saw. In other words, they took the Catholic Church... Luther reformed it, but then they drove stakes into the ground again and said, we can never change anything again. Big mistake. He went on to say, the Calvinists, Calvin came just a few years after Luther, the Calvinists are stuck where Calvin left them, a misery much to be lamented, for though they were precious and shining lights in their times, Luther and Calvin Yet God had not revealed his whole will to those two men. Keep moving forward. Listen to what he says. Were Luther and Calvin now living, 1620, 100 years later, they would be as ready and willing to embrace further light as they were willing to embrace light in 1517, 100 years ago. People ask me all the time, Pastor Harold, what would your dad say if he was alive? He would say, let's move forward. No one knows him better than I or better than my mother sitting in this congregation. We've reformed a lot of things. What would your pastor say? Uh, My dad would say, maybe you're not moving fast enough. Let's go. let's, Let's take this to another generation. Let's figure out how to reach our current America. The reformers reformed with the light they had. But those who followed the reformers then got comfortable and anchored and would reform no more. Instead, they sealed themselves in amber, frozen again like fossils in the historical record, never to change anymore. Let me remind you, he says, of our church covenant, whereby we promise and covenant with God and with one another to receive whatsoever light or truth shall be made known to us from his written word. Well, examine and compare and weigh it with other scriptures of truth before you receive it as truth. For it is not possible for the Christian world having come so lately out of such thick anti-Christian darkness of Europe that full perfection of knowledge should break forth all at once. This is progressive. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's not possible that God could dump everything on us of his truth all at once. Now, the word of God is complete, but the truth contained in it's being revealed to you little by little. You want some examples? You see, it would be several hundred years still before people would wake up and realize that slavery is immoral. And would free the slaves, 1800, 1865. It would then be another hundred years before people would wake up and realize that women are not property. Amen. The women wouldn't be liberated even in our own country for another almost hundred years, really. You say, well, why didn't it all the Reformation happen at once? We couldn't handle it. That's what I've been preaching to you the whole fall here. We couldn't handle it all at once. It would have blown people's minds if Jesus had risen from the dead and said, okay, let all the slaves go free. Liberate the women. Let the slaves go free. Let's treat each other all as he... Even. even when Paul started talking about this in Galatians, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. Even when Paul starts laying that out in the book of Galatians, 30 years later, it's revolutionary. It's mind-blowing. It's countercultural to everything that they understood. The world was not ready for all of it to be unloaded on them at once, not even, especially not the Christian world world even now God's revealing to us more and more of what the world's going to look like before his coming even now we're understanding a little more clearly we come to the voyage they finally set sail on August 5th 1620 as soon as they put out to sea they were three days into the Atlantic Ocean when the speedwell started taking on an excessive amount of water When all you can see is water on every side and your boat is taking on a lot of water and you're going to a place you've never been and not sure how long it's going to take to get there and if you should ever come back, three days at sea is a good time to turn around. Amen? So they turned Bayflower and the speedwell around. They went to the nearest port, which was Dartmouth. They pumped the ship dry and they spent a week caulking the hull of the speedwell in Dartmouth. After a week of repairing the ship, they put to sea again. One day, into the Atlantic Ocean, the Speedwell starts taking on water. Finally, the captain of the Speedwell says, this is not a transatlantic ship. She is not seaworthy. She's only good for putting around in the harbor. We will not take her any further into the ocean, else we all die. They turned both ships uh, back around, and they met at the harbor again, pumped her dry, and now they have to separate the congregation again. And when they said the speed well's going to stay in Europe, put it up for sale, it's a piece of junk, But now the weakest and the most delicate will have to weed you out again and you'll have to stay. They have a congregation of 500. They just keep paring them down now, paring them down until they get around 100 people is what happens. And you can imagine the tears again, moving your suitcases again and reshuffling again. And this group is going back to be with the church in Europe. And the other group now is about to push off and head for the unknown coast of North America. August, September. September the 6th, 1620. The Mayflower finally embarked on the epic of voyage across the Atlantic with 102 souls on board. 102 people. Now you cannot imagine in your wildest dreams, in your most vivid imagination, you cannot imagine the physical and emotional difficulties of a 1620 transatlantic crossing in a wooden sailboat. You cannot imagine it. The Mayflower was a small freighter. It's not a big ship, very small. It was not a cargo ship. I mean, it was not a passenger ship. It was a cargo ship. It had never carried passengers. There's no cushy couches. It's not a cruise ship, guys. <clears throat> there, there's no promenade deck and dining room and buffet and ice sculptures and chocolate fountain and disco. I mean, it's, it's not. Uh, you know, This is not uh, the Royal Caribbean line. This is a small wooden boat. Uh, It was nicknamed the Mayflower the the Sweet Ship because Captain Jones, typically his normal run was France to England hauling cognac in casks. And the cognac seeped out of the wooden casks and it soaked into the boards of the Mayflower because that's the run they made constantly. And so the Mayflower took on this sweet alcohol cognac aroma. The ship smelled like a a cognac factory. They called it the sweet ship, but it would not be sweet for long. The seas were extremely rough on the crossing. They endured 65 days of turbulent seas. 65 days with battened hatches, confined below decks, with no ventilation, in the dim recess of the Mayflower's gun deck. Let me just put it right out there for you. For nine weeks, they puked their guts out. Has anybody here been seasick? On a little wooden sailboat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in a storm. Now just ratchet it up is what I'm saying. Just keep ratcheting it up. For nine weeks they puked their guts out. You can imagine what that ship smelt like in the gun deck. With a hundred people with buckets giving it up. Though no, no fires were permitted on the crossing at all. Everyone ate the rations cold. The biscuits were so frozen, the historical record says they smashed them into pieces with a hammer and chisel in order to eat them. The cheese is now moldy, creepy, crawling things are moving through the peas and the grain. That's September. It was not until November the 9th that they finally heard the cry from up on the mast, Land ho! And don't you know they had a worship service when they heard those words. It was now clear, once they came up top decks, dropped in anger, it was now clear they were not in Virginia. They were somewhere else. The storm and the captain's navigation and all that had pushed them off course. They are not in Virginia. Now they're in the highlands of Cape Cod somewhere, way north, off course. And since the Virginia Company has now landed them in the wrong place, They cannot build a Virginia colony on Virginia land owned by the Virginia Company of Great Britain. Since they are not in the right place, their contract with the Virginia Company is now torn up. What that means is they are no longer indentured servants, they are no longer slaves to the Virginia Company, and for that they celebrate, but new concerns arose. Where exactly are we? We're not sure. Other concerns arose. How much time before winter comes? It's November. (laughs) We're in Massachusetts. How long until the snow starts to fall and the weather will become our worst nightmare? There's not a single structure in the new world to hide inside of. Only this boat sitting in the harbor with the wind blowing. Realizing they no longer had a contract, they built the first civil government of North America. They reached a unanimous decision to write their own political document authorizing a government of self-rule. William Brewster, with 200 books on board, is likely the framer of the Mayflower Compact, which is the name of the first document of American history. The Mayflower Compact is the famous document which followed the model of their church constitution. They said, we've got to write a government. Does anybody know anything about government? Okay. And then somebody said, no, but we have a church constitution, which is a church government. They said, great, we'll follow the model of our church constitution. And the Mayflower Compact represents the first time in American history that free men voluntarily covenanted together to formulate their own civil government. In other words, throughout history, people were conquered and put under a government against their will. This was the first time that people came together and shook hands and said, hey, let's submit ourselves to a government of the people, for the people, by the people. We'll make our own government. How's that sound? And they wrote out their own contract to make their own government. We have a picture of the Mayflower Compact. It's been copied several times. There were three copies made of that. One is in William uh, uh, Bradford's uh, journal, Our American heritage begins with these words. In the name of God. In the name of God. Actually, it begins in ye name of God. Amen. Now, for those of you who turn on the news or go to the university and they say, the founding fathers weren't really Christians. It's not a Christian nation. It was not built on blah, blah, blah. blah." I just want you to pull out a copy of the Mayflower Compact and slide it across the desk. The first document of American history says, In the name of God, amen. The opening sentence of the next paragraph says, For ye glory of God and advancement of ye Christian... Oh, we forgot to put the word. See it up there? The edit? Faith. Let me read it again. The second, first sentence of the next paragraph says, For the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. Do you know why America was built? For the glory of God, number two, and the advancement of the Christian faith. The advancement of the Christian faith, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, is go and make disciples of all nations. The America was built for the glory of God and the mission of making disciples cross-culturally outside of Europe. These guys and gals sat down and wrote a document that paved the way That you might have a country where you have an opportunity to be saved, to be baptized, and to follow the mission of Jesus Christ for your life, to make disciples and, and, and move your life forward freely, following God according to your conscience, which is what they could not do in Great Britain. It's what they could not do in Holland. It's what they could not do in Germany. It's what they could not do in Italy or Spain or Portugal. So they said, for Pete's sake, let's make a government that will allow people to freely worship God and advance the Christian faith. We come to Plymouth Rock now. They scouted the area in the opening days of December. Now, they're still living on the Mayflower, anchored in Cape Cod Harbor. They're not living on the shore yet. There's nothing to live in. There's no north face tent to pitch. No camp stove to fire up. No propane bottle to... to li- There's nothing but wilderness. So they're living on the Mayflower. They're, they've got a little like a rowboat, row a, 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 a smaller boat. And, and they're investigating a little bit with a scouting party in the opening days of December. They discovered cleared fields. They knew someone was there they discovered a large kettle they discovered a bunch of indian graves and dilapidated remains of old houses uh, structures wooden structures falling down after noticing suspicious looking heaps thinking i don't know if they're graves or too small to be graves or just little little mounds they began to unearth the heaps and discovered what was buried baskets of dried corn the discovery of that corn cannot be underestimated Just a few days from now, the ground will be completely covered by snow and they would have never found it. That discovery of the corn became the seed they would plant the first year and ultimately would contribute to their survival. And they confessed we're going to take the corn it doesn't belong to us it obviously belongs to somebody but it looks like they're all dead but if we can repay the people if you know we'll repay it at another time they made a solemn pledge to repay it to whoever owned it if that was possible and then they took the corn and they 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 took it back to, to the mayflower and kept it the record says in bradford's journal the next day was sunday so they took the lord's day off the morning preaching service lasted for four hours I guess y'all can just leave me alone for a while, right? (laughs) They spent the afternoon having lunch and then late in the afternoon they returned together for a teaching service that ran another three hours. Can you imagine that? Chronicled in Bradford's journal. The pilgrims made the historic landing at Plymouth Rock the day after Sunday, so on Monday they put ashore. The seas were rough that day, they couldn't get all the the people off the boat, listen, there's, there's two uh, women uh, that are pregnant traveling with them. One gives birth just before they make it across the Atlantic, names the baby Oceanus. There's women and children. So anyway, they're coming ashore. The seas are rough. They say, stay on the boat. We'll start bringing some stuff ashore, but we'll get you all off the boat within the next few days. William Bradford is going to be the governor of Plymouth Plantation. William Bradford was prepared. ...to serve as governor by a life of hardship. He was born in 1590 in Yorkshire, England. William Bradford's father died when he was one year old. He was thrown from pillar to post throughout all of his formative years. His mother remarried. They didn't want him. So they sent Bradford to to live with his grandfather. Two years into that, his grandfather died. They sent him back to live with the mother and the stepfather. A year later... The mother dies. The stepfather doesn't want him and ships him off to live with a distant uncle. While living with the distant uncle, the lonely orphan discovered a copy of the Bible. And and at 12 years of age, he began to read the Bible all alone. No one to explain it to him. No one to guide him. No one to care. So the 12-year-old boy reading his Bible begins to search for a church where somebody can explain to him the book he's reading. Lo and behold, he stumbles into the Pilgrim Church and at the age of 16 becomes a church member by himself attending church. Though ill for most of his young life, obviously he speaks English, William Bradford mastered French, Dutch, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. He's not a dummy. Now they're in America, they're trying to get everybody off the Mayflower, tragically in the last hours before they got everybody ashore, William Bradford's wife Dorothy fell overboard in the Cape Cod Harbor and drowned after making the crossing and being anchored there for all these months. Can you imagine the devastation? Do you ever sometimes just want to curl up in a ball and say, everything's against me? Just nothing seems to go right in my world? Can I remind you, if you ever feel that way, that William Bradford was one of the people who changed the world? And maybe God's doing something really great in your life as well, and you're going to see that soon. You're going to see the big picture of why sometimes God lets us go through difficulties. William Bradford was uniquely crafted by experience, by circumstance, to be this man who could survive. Of the 102, 99 came ashore at Plymouth Rock. Seventeen pilgrim wives grieved Dorothy's passing when they buried her. Twelve of those seventeen wives would join Dorothy within a few days in the grave. Now she wants you to understand what's about to happen. We've come to the starving time. It's now January. Bradford wrote in his journal, but that which was most sad and lamentable was that in two or three months' time, January, February, March, half of the company died, especially in January and February. So there died sometimes two or three a day that of the odd 100 persons, scarce 50 now remained alive. In the time of most distress, there was but six or seven sound persons who spared no pains Night or day, but with abundance of toil and hazard to their own health, they fetched them wood, made them fires, dressed them meat, made their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed and unclothed them, did all the necessary offices for them, which dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to be named, to hear named. And all of this they did willingly and cheerfully, without any grudging in the least, showing herein their true love unto their friends and brethren, a rare example and worthy to be remembered. Now 14 of the husbands have died as well. At the end of March, only three families remained intact. The Indian problem. As time went on, the Indian problem oddly enough, never did materialize. They thought at any moment we're going to be fighting Indians, savage attacks. It never did materialize. It remained a great mystery to the pilgrims as to why they had not been attacked by the savages until the afternoon of March the 16th when a century suddenly cried, there's an Indian coming! Captain Standish and the others grabbed their guns and looked on as a tall, Muscular, brave, clothed only in a loincloth, boldly strolled right down their main street to the common house they had built. Slowly raising his hand in a friendly salute, he caught everyone off guard when, in perfect English, he said, Welcome. They were further shocked with his next words Do you guys have any beer? Now some of you are pretty fired up about the founding fathers right now and (laughs) the historical record. I'm sensing that in the room. Realizing the Indian was hungry, they fed the guests before questioning. His name was Samoset. He's a chief of the Algonquin Indian tribe. He could speak English because he had made several contacts with explorers who had come to North America. He had exchanged information with them. He had actually been taken by them. And that's how he learned English. He gave the pilgrims a very chilling history lesson that afternoon. He told them, Plymouth Colony that you've built or that you're building right here is situated smack dab in the middle of the Patuxet Indian tribe territory. The pilgrims were like, okay. He said, you don't understand. The Patuxet Indian tribe are the most feared and fearsome and savage Indian tribe in all of New England. Every time an outsider has landed on these shores, the Patuxet Indians have massacred those people instantly with no questions asked. They said, well, we haven't seen any of them. He said, let me tell you why you've not seen any Indian attacks. There are no Indians to attack you. The Patuxet Indian tribe no longer exists. Four years before the Mayflower's arrival... A mysterious plague wiped out every man, woman, and child of the Patuxet Indians. All of the neighboring Indians, of which he is a chief of the Algonquins, Samoset said, "We all are convinced that this is a supernatural act against this savage tribe, and the gods or whoever they worship, the Great Spirit, have supernaturally wiped out these people." The Pilgrim said, "Well, you know, who's nearby? Do we have any neighbors?" Samoset said, the the Wampanoags of Rhode Island, they're the nearest Indians to you. And I've already talked to the chief, Massasoit. Chief Massasoit wants to come and visit you. They want to strike a peaceful relationship with the pilgrims. Well, this was a big win for the pilgrims. Samoset said, he's bringing also an interpreter that can speak English, and you're going to be shocked when you meet this man. Within a few weeks, the chief... Uh, from Rhode Island, Massasoit, arrived in full Indian tribal regalia and all of his painted warriors, 60 of them, painted warriors come in. Following the customary greetings and gift exchange and and fellowship around food, they negotiated a six-point peace treaty that would remain intact in New England for the next 25 years. Massasoit's interpreter was an Indian by the name of Squanto, and his English is flawless. The pilgrims were astounded at his personal testimony. Squanto informed them that he had actually was a member of the Patuxet Indian tribe. But many years before, he had been kidnapped by explorers. He had been taken to Europe. He had been taken on their expeditions, and they had taught him how to speak English. He was first kidnapped in 1605. It's now 1620, 15 years later. After spending nine years in England... He escaped. I don't know the details. I can't find them. How you escape from England as the only living Patuxet Indian speaking English in the world, or the only Patuxent alive in the world, and you can get across the Atlantic Ocean back to North America. But when he arrived, he said, I arrived and I came to this land which you're living on, and I searched for my people, and I found not one living soul, only graves and a ghost town, Can you imagine? He said it was absolutely traumatic how it affected my life. As Massasoit and the Braves departed, Squanto shocked the pilgrims one more time when he asked the pilgrims, can I stay here and live with you? I'd like to provide any assistance I can provide. I know this place, this is my land. I know this place and I can teach you how to survive for years to come, I've got the survival skills. This is my home. With 50 pilgrims of 102, 99 came ashore. With 50 pilgrims already in the graveyard now. What do you think their answer was? I mean, if Bear Grill shows up and says, hey, would you like me to hang out here with you for a while? You say, absolutely. We were, you know, what, what could we do to get you to stay and show us how to survive here? Squanto taught them, How to refine maple syrup, how to stalk game, how to plant pumpkins, how to catch eels. And it was his planting method that would ultimately save the pilgrim's life. He taught them how to plant corn, Indian style, by using fish as fertilizer, which, taking the seed from them, they survived the the coming years. It was Bradford that wrote in his journal, Squanto was sent to us as a special instrument of God. We come to the first Thanksgiving in my conclusion. Bradford wrote in his journal, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, so that we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as served the company a week. That was a good day's hunting, guys. If you're a duck hunter, you're, you're like, or a turkey hunter, enough fowl that will feed 50 to 100 people for a week, that's a good day of hunting, okay? At which time we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming in amongst us and amongst the rest, their great King Massasoit with some 90 men came for whom for three days we entertained. This is the first Thanksgiving. We entertained and we feasted, and the Indians then went out and killed five deer which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and upon the others. They had a big celebration, exactly what you and I are going to do this week. We're going to go kill the fatted uh, turkey and and, and bake a ham. Listen, we've got the oil ready, the fryer dusted off, you know what I'm saying. You've got grandma's stuffing recipe pulled down. I'm reading this history to you so when you gather with your family this week, you can reflect back and remember what this country is all about. It's not just about feasting and eating turkey. They survived. And over here, there are 50 graves with their wives and their husbands buried in them. Do you know, they're, they're having a party because they survived. We got through it. We're going to survive now. We've got houses built. We've got an Indian who's teaching us how to, how to survive Look, we're going to make it now. And you know what began to happen? I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But this man who lost his wife and this woman who lost her husband, they begin to marry each other just like that within the congregation. And they begin to have children. And they raised up a whole other church, basically, among that little community of believers. Squanto had one Thanksgiving with them. It would be his first and his last. Their beloved Indian friend died of a fever September the following year. On his deathbed, Squanto asked Governor Bradford, Governor, will you pray with me? I want to go to the Englishman's God in heaven. As far as we know, in the historical record, Squanto was the first Christian convert. ...on North American soil. Do you remember the government they built... ...and the reason they came? In the name of God, amen. For the uh, glory of God... ...and the advancement of ye Christian faith. The pilgrims had begun now the mission... ...of making disciples for Jesus Christ. And Squanto would mark the first person who came to faith in Jesus Christ in this country. Bradford wrote in his journal, Thus, out of small beginnings, greater things have been produced. As one small candle may light a thousand candles, so the light here kindled has shone unto many. Let the glorious name of Jehovah have all the praise. I want to challenge you with the legacy of your forefathers. And I want to challenge you with the words of Jesus Christ. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, which is in heaven. This is your legacy. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. As we bow before the Savior this morning, take a moment of reflection right now. It's thanksgiving. Could we as a church family spend just a minute giving thanks right now for a Savior who sacrificed Himself for us, for brave men and women who've sacrificed themselves for us, for families who have invested in us, for community that disciples us. We are rich people relationally. God has blessed us so much relationally. I want you just to take a moment and give thanks for what God's done for you. If you're here without Christ this morning, there are many people here who could lead you in a prayer to receive Christ as your Savior. All you would have to do is come and take the hand of one of them and say, Hey, would you pray with me? I need to be a follower of Christ. They know exactly how to help you. They'll be in the back of the auditorium at the end of this service to help you. If you need to be a member of this church, another many going through starting point today, we're going to ask you to join next week. We're going to conclude this service in a little different way this morning. I'm going to pray and then we're going to come and bring our boxes and just pile them right here. And you can just let everybody come and pile around, and then we're going to pray and dedicate these to the Lord together. Father, bless the people as they generously give this morning. Lord, the gifts we're about to give, we give them that others might hear. Lord, we can never be thankful or expressive of our thanks enough to you for all that you've done for us. God, we just rejoice As we hear the hardship that so many have gone through to bring us to this hour, thank you for reminding us of that. Lord, that inspires us to be good stewards of the heritage we've been given. Lord, let this week be a a celebration of Thanksgiving in our homes. Lord, bring our families together safely. For the people that are in this room that will be traveling, may your hands wrap around them and carry them safely to their destination. Lord, for loved ones that will be driving. Lord, bring them here to us safely. Lord, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand together. If you have a box you want to bring this morning, I've got mine right down here. I'm going to grab mine before the crowd locks me out here. Mine's extra heavy. I put gold bricks in mine. If you want to pile it, just move out of the side and just gather here. We'll just pray together. You can come join me on the platform or gather around on the floor, but just hang out for a minute. If you're one of the volunteers who've been working so hard for weeks, uh, you come and just gather here. Dolores is... Just take my hand here, and you can come right up here on the platform with me. Stare into the light. There you go. Debbie and the Brack sisters, and there's a whole bunch of you. Just hang out right here for a minute. Lisa, whoever, all you volunteers, just come on here. Why don't you come over here and join these guys and help them on the steps if they need some help. Let's, uh, let's pray together Here's our prayer Every one of these boxes it's a boy from 5 to 9 And a girl And a boy and a girl These are people That's the way I want you to think about this These are people Those, Every one of these represents a boy or a girl Who doesn't know Jesus Christ And our prayer right now Is they're going to come to know Jesus Christ In the next few months Okay. One of the greatest things that could happen Is if you get an email I don't know how that Happens or if it ever happens, but I put my email address on there. The greatest thing that could happen is get an email for some boy and girl around the world to say, I heard the story of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Let's pray together. Father, we present our gifts in the house of God this morning to you. And God, every one of these boxes to us represents a boy or a girl who doesn't know you. And Lord, our prayer right now is for you to begin to prepare the hearts of these boys and girls to receive the story of christ and the gospel lord i pray that every child that receives a gift would come to know you as savior lord that you would raise up a nation of disciple makers wherever these children are at and lord by our giving it's like lighting that candle that lights a thousand others father thank you for every member of cornerstone who gives so sacrificially For things, Thank you for volunteers who labor tirelessly, Lord, that people can receive the gospel and the kingdom of God can be enlarged. God, we pray over these boys and girls right now and over the Samaritan's Purse staff around the world. Lord, that as they present the gospel, that the power of the Holy Spirit would go forth. And God, you would empower those words. And may salvation happen all around the world in the coming weeks as we celebrate Christmas. And people hear the story of Jesus Christ. Father, may you anoint these boxes with your power. Lord, as the children tear into them, may the gifts delight their heart and become like a key that unlocks their heart to hearing the words of the message. Lord, this is our prayer together as a church family. Thank you for using us for this mission. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. I'll see you next Sunday morning.